You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. I invite you to open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Verses 33 through 36 is where we'll conclude our time together. I started leading worship in 1995. 1995 was the year that Lord I Lift Your Name on High was born. We needed a worship leader on a Wednesday night. I learned to play three chords. And at that time, you could play almost every song with three chords that were being written. Um, Most songs had one chorus, two verses, and three chords. And so I was in business. Uh, When I first started leading music in the church, we used these things called transparencies. Transparencies are, they're like a sheet of paper, but you can see through them, and only the words show up, and these magical glowing boxes project them. This is before ProPresenter and all of these things. I felt called to serve the church in leading in song. There are few coaches and models to look to. I remember being 16 years old and writing a physical letter. That's how people used to communicate. And I mailed a letter to a worship leader. You shouldn't be surprised to know I never heard back. Um, because I, just, I needed some kind of a mentor, someone to teach and train me. At age 18, I drove all the way to Southern California to have breakfast with a worship leader there who I wanted to learn from. Um, I felt alone in this task. I felt alone in trying to learn and discover what it was to lead worship in a local church. That's one of the reasons we started Doxology and Theology. It's for those of you who are, who are younger in the ministry, you would have models, coaches, examples. And so everyone who has stood on this platform are men that I'm learning from, that I'm commending to you to be learning from. I praise God for this conference. This is such a gift to me, to be able to sit with you and to learn from these men and women and to be encouraged and strengthened. I've learned pastoral humility from Michael Bleeker and theological rigor from Zach Hicks and Matthew Westerholm. I'm indebted deeply to the faculty here at Southern Seminary for what I've learned. Challenged as a songwriter by men like Keith Getty and most everything that most of us have learned has come from Bob Coughlin, let's just be honest. (laughs) I've learned how to dream things that the Lord could use in the area of worship from Aaron Ivey. I've also learned that I might want to consider wearing a really cool hat. (laughs) I needed a community like doxology and theology. And so I hope in the last few days you have sensed um, a sense of camaraderie. I described this as as a family reunion of sorts on our first day together. And I hope you've experienced that. A common bond centered on the gospel. Even with all of the denominations and expressions and, and so forth that we do experience from church to church. The gospel is a thing that unifies us. Worship Reformed is what we've called this conference. We've seen how the five solas of the Reformation touch our lives and our worship of Jesus. Scripture alone 
Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. One of the phrases that was birthed out of the Reformation is the Latin phrase, semper reformata. Semper reformata, that means always reforming. Michael Horton explains where this phrase comes from. The saying first appeared in 1674 as a devotional book by Jodicus van Lodenstein. If you're looking for names for your next born, Jodicus van Lodenstein. It's important for us as we talk about always reforming to understand the entirety of the phrase. So there's more to it than just semper reformata. I'll read to you the entirety in the Latin. This is the extent of my Latin knowledge, by the way. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbi dei. The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed. And here's the caveat, according to the Word of God. So just to be clear, we're not called to reform to the culture, we're called to reform to the Word. That's our task. The motto of our worship practices must never be forward, but always backward to the Word of God. That's how we continue to reform our worship practices, by holding all of them up to the light of God's Word. What would it look like to have an entire generation of worship leaders serving and loving the local church who were committed to the sufficiency of the Bible as the foundation for corporate worship. That's what I'm dreaming of. That's what I'm praying for. The reason we have this conference is toward that aim, praying that God would give us a generation of faithful servants who would stand in local churches week after week and herald the good news of the gospel in song and in prayer. So doxology and theology is this interplay of these two ideas. You can't have one without the other. The goal of all theology is doxology. It is the worship of God. Theology runs its full course when doxology is its aim. We're called to be theologians whose hearts sing. Does your theology make your heart sing? Does your theology make your heart sing? For some of us, it may be that we don't have enough theology. We need to continue to be students of God's word, maybe in a brand new way. Maybe you're leaving this conference saying, I I need to really immerse myself in the word of God so my theology can, in fact, lead my heart more. Others of us, perhaps our theology is right, but our hearts have grown cold and dull. Regardless of where you find yourself or perhaps somewhere in between, my hope is that our doctrine, our theology, would in fact make our hearts sing. The most profound moments of worship for me in the last few years have actually not come from singing, though I may have just had one when Sojourn was leading us. (laughs) They've come through reading, through reading commentaries and books on biblical theology, things that I never would have considered 22 years ago where I would have found life and joy. And now as I'm reading things, seeing how people have experienced God, there are moments that my heart becomes so inflamed with love for God, I can't help but let that overflow into song. There's a beautiful pairing of theology and doxology. 
And that's exactly what we see in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. This section known as Paul's doxology. What's happened is Paul, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, has just painted the most articulate and beautiful picture of the gospel, I think, in all of Scripture. And what he's about to do in chapter 12, verse 1, is then flesh out all of this gospel truth into our everyday lives. And so what does he do between this gospel articulation and this gospel application? He stops. He's led us through his doctrine of God and man and justification by faith. And like he's led us to the top of this mountain of the gospel. And here we're, we're seeing the glory of God and it's as if Paul leans over to us and says, isn't this view breathtaking? Isn't this glorious? And we're like, yes, yes it is. And then he says, this is, this is just the beginning. It's more glorious. It's continuing to be incredible all the time. Paul's heart explodes with praise and worship to the God who rescues. Paul's theology leads him to doxology. We've talked a lot about Watts this weekend. Watts is one of my favorite hymn writers in church history. An incredible writer with an unusual frame. Among the giants of church history, Watts is the resident midget. Five feet tall. Uh, his biographers say he was a quite unattractive man. He had a large nose, which I can relate to that. Uh, disproportionate head shape. There was one of his biographers um, tells a story of a young woman who was interested in Watts, who was single his entire life. And uh, she had listened to the hymns of Watts, and she, she's interested, as one would be. And so she goes and meets Watts, and she says, Oh. Okay. And she later writes in this letter and says, if you were as beautiful as your hymns were, this might have worked out. <laughs> Can you believe that? Give this man some grace, woman. He wrote Joy to the World, and when I survey the wondrous cross, just give him a second date. Watts would write hymns to help explain his sermons. That's what hymnody was for him. And his church, Marks Lane Chapel, loved that he did this. People would come on Sundays, sometimes just to sing the hymns that Watts would write. Bond, one of his biographers, said of Watts, Watts's theology became their theology, the people of Marks Lane. His doxology became their doxology. What a great task for us as people who are commissioned to lead the local church in worship. That the theology that that we treasure and prize would become the theology of our people. That the doxology that we experience and, and teach and model would become the doxology of our people. My prayer in these final few moments that we have is that Paul's theology would become our theology. That Paul's doxology would become our doxology. That as a people who lead congregational worship, we would stand in the tradition of the reformers and continue this practice of always reforming our worship.
Let's stand together and read from God's word. These are God's words, inerrant, perfect through and through, eternally true. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, how thankful we are that you're the God who condescends. The God who communicates, who makes himself known. We praise you for the joy it is to be on the receiving end of that communication. This morning as we conclude our time together, let the truthfulness of your word ring through our hearts. Let it ring through our lives. Let it ring through our churches. We pray this for our continued joy in Christ and for your matchless glory. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing I want us to look at here in Paul's doxology is this, that Paul's doxology is a response to the gospel. Paul's overflow of worship is a response to the gospel. That might not be evidently clear because we've not been sweeping through Romans 1 through 11 But let me tell you what Paul has in view in this hymn of praise here. In each of these phrases Paul is using, he's pointing us back to God's work in the gospel. Let's look through them. So first, what does Paul mean by the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God? Well, he means a lot. To begin with, he means that God himself is all that he ever needs. Endless resources, unfathomable wisdom, unending power. Specifically, though, overwhelmed by the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, he's highlighting the knowledge of God in salvation, in planning and executing, fulfilling the salvation of his people. The very things that he's been writing about in his letter to the church in Rome. Paul is blown away by the power, the sufficiency, the strength, and the breadth of the gospel. He realizes that the depths of God's wisdom are beyond him, the knowledge of God too great for him. So what is, what is Paul praising God for? He focuses here on the unsearchable judgments of God. The unsearchable judgments. What he means by this is God's omniscience. God knows all things. The God who's never been surprised. Specifically with the gospel in view, the riches and wisdom and judgments of God are seen perfectly in Jesus. It's in Jesus we see God's riches put on display. His wisdom demonstrated. It's in Jesus we see God's judgments carried out. 
when Paul says here that God's ways are inscrutable, what he means is they literally cannot be understood or interpreted. They're like a Radiohead record, like after OK Computer. It's just like, what? What's happening? This, this could have been really great. Paul's saying here that God's ways cannot be traced, especially in light of the gospel. We cannot trace the way that he's performed his salvation. Now, we understand a lot in everything that he has revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 are for us and our kids. But the secret things, those things belong to the Lord. Salvation is the mysterious work of God. His ways are untraceable. In the beautiful words of William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the deep and he rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Paul's worship of Jesus is a response to the gospel of Jesus. That should also be true of us. If Paul's doxology is to be ours, we must see the gospel at the center of our worship. Each week when we gather together, we are rehearsing and retelling the glorious good news of Jesus. You're doing more than just singing songs. You are heralds of good news. What a beautiful thing. We can disagree about style and methodology all day long, but let me tell you what we're doing at our core. We're singing about the completed work of Jesus. Can we all agree on that? What a beautiful task. That is the commission of the worship leader, to retell, rehearse, re-sing the beautiful, completed, sufficient work of Jesus, to hold that up in front of our churches week after week, to allow that reality and that truth to continue to burn in our hearts, making our lives more and more like Christ and encouraging the people of God toward that reality. If you have a liturgy without the gospel, all you have is a new law. God save us from caring so much about the order of what we're doing or the style of what we're doing that we forget the person we're doing this for. Jesus Christ stands at the center of every one of our meetings, welcoming us, reminding us his nearness, his presence with his people. Paul's doxology remembers the gospel. My friend J.R. Vassar has said, if he's saying this to preachers, if your sermon is just as true, had Christ not died and risen from the dead, you didn't preach the gospel, you gave advice. So if you sing songs that are just as true, if Jesus had not died and rose again, you've not sung the gospel, you just made noise. Jesus is the center of our worship. The gospel is what we're responding to together. My question for you, are your worship gatherings communicating first the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it something else that's being primarily communicated? And for us, the implications of that are incredibly important. We've taken something that was so simple and added layers of complexity upon it. But remember, all we need for corporate worship is God's word open in the midst of his people. And our hearts being lifted and encouraged, strengthened 
by God's presence in the midst of us. Paul's doxology is a response to the gospel, is ours. As we continue to look at verses 34 and 35, I want us to see this. Paul's doxology is drenched in humility. Paul's doxology is drenched in humility. In this part of Paul's worship, he's aware of God's greatness and his smallness. Some of our churches have forgotten how to feel small because we've forgotten how great God is. We worship a transcendent, holy, perfect God who ever rules and reigns, whose holiness is beyond description. And in light of that, we sense our smallness. There should be a sense of the bigness of God in our gatherings. That's where we feel our humility and our smallness against that backdrop. Notice the humility that Paul speaks with here. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given to him a debt that he might be repaid? We cannot come to the end of thinking about God or understanding all there is about him. There's some truths that our minds will never wrap around. Think about this. The Trinity? How do you explain the Trinity? Have you come to the bottom of it? How about the hypostatic union? God's sovereignty over suffering. There are beautiful and brilliant truths in the Word of God that are just meant to cripple the greatest of minds, that are meant to cause the greatest praise in the hearts of His people. Let me just tell you, just as a side note, speaking of God's sovereignty over suffering, if you're going to be a person who stands in front of God's people week after week, you better have a large category for God's sovereignty over suffering. Because in the lives of your people and in your life, those waves will crash. And God will sustain. He's good. He's good through all of it. God humbles us with his wisdom. Paul's looking at the glory of God in redeeming his people. And he finds it absolutely humbling. I want to quote Milton Vincent from his book Gospel Primer. This is what he says. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place." Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. The gospel is the only cure strong enough for our pride. A prideful worship leader is an oxymoron, isn't it? A prideful worship leader is a moron. Can I just say, I have been this? It's fun for us to laugh at that, right? And we're laughing and then, oh yeah, that's me. Where does pride rise up in your heart? How about even over this conference? You see people standing up here singing, worshiping Jesus, and you're thinking, well, I think I could do that better. Right? 
Or uh, that guitar player, I'm pretty sure he just played one chord the entire time. <laughs> this is in us. We have to kill this all the time. The gospel is the cure for our pride. We have to kill this. Do you remember the first time that you led people in singing? Remember the first time you were a part of that? How beautiful and sweet and fulfilling just serving God's people is? I think one of the challenges that we have as worship leaders is to remember how beautiful this is. Because our pride gets involved. What Jared just said a few minutes ago, we try to make things bigger and better because yesterday wasn't good enough. What about just the slow and steady faithfulness of leading maybe most of the same songs week in and week out for years? Is that enough? I think so. I think so. I hope so. I pray so. That's all I've got going. Keep singing these same faithful songs. Yeah, we're going to keep adding to them, right? We want to keep singing new songs to the Lord. Psalm 96.1 is true. But what if that's just what the rest of life looks like? Is that enough for us? Getting to serve people, getting to be with Jesus and his people in the midst of worship and serve however that looks like. Pride for me has made that not enough. Repentance, regular repentance is the cure. Say, God, this is in me. Help me deal with this. Help me weed this from the garden of my heart. Entitlement may be one of the loudest voices in the ear of the worship leader that we must silence. We don't deserve any of this. If you're involved in serving your local church in worship, did you know you don't deserve that? That wasn't promised to you when Jesus saved you. Nope, that's grace upon grace. Nothing more, nothing less. We deserve death. We've been given life. And then, and then the Holy Spirit of God has given us gifts, yes, to encourage and edify and strengthen the body of Christ. But we don't deserve this. Gratitude, thankfulness, humility. In this tiny doxology, Paul is disarming us of our wisdom. He's disarming us of our righteousness, of our pride. He wants us to see how great our need is. He says, oh, you, do you think you've taught God something? Do you think God owes you? God doesn't owe you. He's the God who is infinitely wise, the God who has unsearchable resources. No, brothers and sisters, we are recipients of God's grace. Our only job and responsibility is to marvel at the grace of God, the sufficiency of God, the wisdom of God, the beauty of God, just like Paul. I do want to point out what Paul's doing here. I think this is important and, and insightful to us who are leading corporate worship week after week. What Paul's actually doing here is he's using the Bible in worship. Paul's quoting from Isaiah and Job here. Why would he do that? Surely these are things that Paul's been meditating on, considering. And here, I think it's fascinating that when his heart overflows with praise to God, what comes out is the Word of God. What comes out is Isaiah and Job. This is instructive for us, that the Word of God must be in us in order to dwell in us richly. We must know it, treasure it in our hearts, and allow it to come forth in praise to God. Paul's calling us to humility here. 
God's welcoming us to humble praise. Doxology that is drenched, soaked through in humble response. And the third thing that I want us to see in this text is that Paul's doxology is fixed on God's greatness and glory. Paul's doxology is fixed on God's greatness and glory. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen? Amen. The issue Paul is first dealing with here, again, is our salvation. It is the gospel. It's from God that our salvation has come. God the Father ordaining our salvation. It's through God that our salvation has been given, through the completed work of Christ, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit, all to the praise of His glorious grace, Ephesians chapter 1. That's how our salvation has been given, from God, through God, to the praise of God. It's from Him, through Him, and to Him. Paul allows the truths that he's been teaching to the church at Rome for these 11 chapters, how we read it today, to be kindling for the fire of worship in his own heart. The reason Paul had laid out for us with such care the beauty of the gospel is so our worship might be informed and a response to God's saving work. He doesn't want our worship of Jesus to be half-informed or half-hearted. He wants us to know and experience the salvation of God, what it's like to be one of his people, to be treasured by God, to walk in communion with the maker. Paul's doxology is a response to the gospel. It's drenched in humility, and it is fixed on God's greatness and glory. Five very brief exhortations to us as we leave. What I'm going to do is just walk through the five solas just with very brief thoughts, points of application that I think will be helpful for us as we head back to our posts. Number one, stand on and under the Word of God. If we're going to be an always reforming people, we must stand on and under the Word of God. We must know the Word of God. Worship leaders should hold a Bible in one hand and an instrument in the other and be equipped for war with each one of these weapons. We must be people of the Word who trust in its sufficiency and its authority and who are under its authority. Scripture alone. Number two, marvel at the grace of Christ. Fight with your heart to make the gospel fresh and real, personal. Marvel at the grace of Christ. It's not enough to sing of God's grace. We must experience it. Grace alone. Number three, cultivate your faith. Fight for your faith. Let your faith cause you to be a praying leader. Let faith be the cure to your doubt, to your fear. Cultivate your faith. Fight for your faith. 
faith alone. Number four, trust in Christ alone. As Tripp said last night, receive the resume of Jesus. Trust in Christ for your salvation. If we remember the faith and the trust that is required for our salvation, surely it's simple for us to trust Christ with the rest of our lives. Be a trusting people in Christ alone. And finally, seek the glory of God. Seek the glory of God. And just so nothing is left off the table, we should be a a people who seek the glory of God in our hearts, in our homes, and in the local church. In our hearts, in our homes, and in the local church who seek the glory of God. What that means is starting right here in this little idol factory, I need this to not seek Matt Boswell's glory or the glory of Providence Church or the glory of anything besides the glory of Christ. And that means in my home, I'm not trying to seek the glory of my family. Look how great and godly we are. No, family worship for us, I mean, Jamie can tell you, it's just messy, right? And there are six sinners in my house, and I am the chief of them. Seek the glory of God in your home. If you stand in front of your church and pray, but you cannot pray with your wife, something's broken. God wants to be glorified in your home. Seek his glory there. And in your church, pray that God will be glorified through your church. That doesn't mean God make us a large church. Lord, let us be the next hill song. These songs that you've given me, I think the nations should be singing with a fake Australian accent. No, God's called them to do that. Let them do that. It could be, as you seek the glory of God in your church, that you remain a small church until the day you die. You think God's plan has gone awry in that? No. God's faithful to every one of his purposes for us. Seek God's glory. God being glorified in our churches is going to look different for every church, just like it looks different for every family. But seek God's glory in your church. Let me tell you the primary way I think we've got to do that as those called to lead our churches in song is to walk in integrity. That's the key thing for us, right? To walk in integrity. You know, a dear friend of mine uh, is a worship leader in a church and just found out his wife had been committing an affair for 18 months with a worship pastor of another church. Your heart should feel sick hearing that. You've been entrusted with a great responsibility. It's a sacred trust to stand before the people of God and lead them in anything. But let me tell you, those who stand in front of God's people are in the target, in the bullseye of an enemy who seeks to devour and steal and kill. He hates that we're doing this. He hates every week that we stand up and we sing praise to the Jesus who has already achieved victory. So protect your eyes. Protect your heart. 
Protect your hands. Protect your wife. Protect your kids. Seek the glory of God in your life. Does your theology make your heart sing? Maybe our theology is not strong enough to make our hearts sing like we think they should. For you, I just encourage you to have some conversations on the way home or once you're back home. Say, I really need, I've been singing, but I haven't really been growing in the word of Christ. You know, that was me. The first five, seven years of leading worship, I loved corporate worship. What I didn't love was my Bible throughout the week. And that creates a heart that is thin. For some of us, it may be, well, my heart, my, my head is full, but my heart is numb and cold. So maybe there's some heart work that you're walking home with. Whether it's head work or heart work, it's all the same work. I want us to see that. There's an interconnectedness here. There's a holistic view of worshiping God. I think that even Paul's modeling here. I think all of Scripture testifies to this. That we should be a people whose minds are filled with thoughts of God and whose hearts are set ablaze with worship for the Son. That's us. Singing theologians. People whose lives have been turned upside down by the power of the gospel. We need our minds washed with the water of, our, of the word and our hearts set ablaze with the work of the Holy Spirit. We must be always reforming our hearts. We must be always reforming our minds. We must be always reforming our lives. We must always be reforming our worship practices according to the word of God. I'm going to invite you, if you would, just to spend a moment in prayer. We just bow your head where you're seated. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to move, but for now, we're going to spend just some extended time in prayer. Just a moment of complete silence. You've heard a lot of sermons in the last three days. You've been to incredible breakout sessions. You've sat under incredible leadership and song. There's been a lot. So I just want to have just a moment of, of complete silence for us to meditate Why don't you ask the Holy Spirit just to illuminate, to bring to mind, call to remembrance, to convict where needed, to encourage where needed? We'll spend just a moment in reflection. Lord, I praise you for these brothers and sisters you've gathered here. I praise you for the work of grace that you performed for the steadfastness of your grace in our lives. I pray for the joy and the peace of the churches that they represent. That we would think rightly and feel deeply toward you. In Christ's name.